Welcome back to JoffeeWoodwinds.com and today I'm going to be spending time uh, with an old colleague, someone who uh, was a fellow student at Juilliard many, many years ago uh, when we were both students of Joe Allard. Uh, and I'm very pleased to have a long uh, tenured and wonderful clarinetist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra who's been a sort of a lightning rod uh, for clarinet players throughout uh, uh, this country and the world in uh, presenting new music and new chamber scenarios, uh, just a, a real force of nature in the clarinet world, John Broussier. So John, thanks so much for participating in this uh, series and um, long overdue, and I'm so happy that uh, you have the time today to do that. And Thanks for inviting me, Ed. It's, yeah. it's great to see you, and uh, I'm looking forward to our chat together and reliving the old Juilliard days. <laughs> well, you weren't there that long, my friend. Uh, I no, I was there for two years, and it was a, it, it was a action-packed two years, and yeah. uh, had, had a wonderful education uh, there at the, at the yard, and also just basically being in New York is an amazing education for any musician yes. of any uh, persuasion. So that was a formative part. Yeah, it was so, uh, New York was so vibrant musically and the, uh, not only the orchestral world, but the freelance world, the commercial world and chamber music was exploding. Uh, oh, yes. Time. And, um, you know, so a different a concert. You could, you could attend, you know, any number of different concerts every night, you know, Carnegie Hall, Alice Tully Hall, M Metropolitan Opera, Philharmonic, you know, you, you had to choose. It was an embarrassment of riches and, and just, um, was such an amazing uh, education and opportunity. Yeah. And you took it, you certainly took advantage of it. And, uh, I do remember, uh, cause you often, I think in my second year there, I was doing a master's when you were, uh, completing your mm -hmm. bachelor's studies. And mm -hmm. I do remember that there was one year or one semester where you had the lesson right after me with Joe Allard on Wednesday. Yeah. And all I can remember is that I knew that the minute my lesson ended, I had to move out of that chair because you were <laughs> right on Ready to go. Exactly. <laughs> Ready to roll to yeah, just were, soak in all that info from Joe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very focused and very... Um, uh, uh, I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> I had a lot of uh, had, repertoire to go clear. through. It was very clear that you were uh, very uh, desirous of succeeding in this business, and and within a short time you were. And uh, mm. that's the focus of our uh, interview today. Um, let's talk about uh, you know how you grew up. I know you grew up in Los Angeles. I did. Uh, your parents uh, were both very accomplished people, scientists, uh, who both played uh, musical instruments at a high level. And uh, so how did it come that you uh, picked up the clarinet? Well, both of my parents are music lovers, and they just had music going in the home at all times. You know, my dad had a great big record collection, and, you know, of course, he inspired me to have a great big record collection, which you can see behind me. I've got 5,000 LPs and almost as many CDs, and uh, I see your CDs there, too. Yeah, that's and it's <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it, it, we were bathed in music from our very first days, my, my two younger sisters and myself, and my parents were, were real music lovers, but um, they gave me 
an education in music too. They they exposed me to music and they took me to concerts. I remember before we moved to Los Angeles because I was born in Washington D.C. Uh, and we moved to L.A. when I was two. Before we moved to L.A., they took me to concerts of the National Symphony in Washington, wow. and it was um, you know it's just part of their uh, DNA to have music in the home and and in our lives. So it was sort of like um, bred into me. And I, I heard a variety of different kinds of orchestral music, chamber music, uh, you know, vocal music. My dad was a singer and he conducted uh, choruses when he was when he was young. And then he performed with the Harvard Glee, Glee Club with the Boston Symphony when he was at Harvard, uh, doing his doctorate at Harvard in mechanical engineering. So it was a big part of his life. And my mom was a, uh, a pianist when, when she was young, had, had a very strict piano pedagogue from Germany that she always used to, Kupka, Kupka, Herr Kupka, you know, he would come over to my house and make me play Hannon. And, and she, she sort of instilled that sense of, of um, discipline in, in me when I was very young. And so they um, gave me piano lessons when I was five years old. And, and uh, we, we didn't have, I don't think I had a very good relationship with a piano teacher. She would be this lady that would come to our house and I don't think we got along because she was very, uh, she, she was very stern. I never, reminded, never remembered her being anything but very, very stern. And so, I guess I got discouraged at the piano and at about the same time, this was when I was five. So um, <laughs> we uh, went to public school in those days and, at, and when we were in second grade, I was six years old in second grade. I, I started school fairly early and then in the second grade they offered orchestra instruments to um, all the students and wow. I remember there being, yeah, an assembly. and all the second graders would kind of go over to the auditorium and they'd have these instruments sort of lined up and we'd kind of thought, ooh and ah and kind of poke them. And then I sort of like, huh, this is interesting. And it's this black stick with holes in it and silver keys. And, and I sort of picked it up and I kind of like fiddled with it. And, you know, and they said, okay, that's the clarinet you can play the clarinet. I said, oh, all right. <laughs> it was, apparently it was that simple. We had sort of this magnetic connection that I sort of like gravitated towards it and the clarinet said, take me. Yeah. And so I went to my um, uh, parents and I said, you know, we were at this assembly today and, and uh, I think I'm going to play the clarinet. And they said, fine, good. Then, um, Maybe you don't have to take piano lessons anymore. And I, and I thought, oh, phew, good. So they got me piano lessons at the local, I mean, they got me clarinet lessons at the local music store. And my actual first clarinet teacher was a, a gentleman named Gordon Harrett. And he taught at this music store called Musician Supply Shop. And um, my parents just said, okay, this is a local music store and, and they have a, a clarinet teacher, so we're gonna get you started. I said, okay. And, you know, 
they rented a clarinet for me. It was it was a metal clarinet at the time. So so I got started and and you know it was I sounded terrible of course and but Mr. Harrett was very patient with me and he showed me oh, this is the reed and this is how you put it on and you know and and everything he was very like gentle which was just the opposite of the piano teacher I had I said hmm okay so he drew me in and showed me the basics and I'm forever uh, forever grateful to to Gordon Harrett for that he had been uh, well trained as a as a, a player and he had studied with a guy named glenn johnston who was oh, also in la I knew you him. know of glenn johnston yeah, you fact, knew I, him i i have some mouthpieces of his my my prime soprano sax mouthpiece is his design and he was there you one go one of those early disney dub uh, doublers uh exactly and yeah. so uh, he um Gordon Harrett had studied with Glenn Johnston, who in turn had studied with Auguste Perrier in Paris. And then he was in the war and he lost one leg. And, you know, and, and then uh, my Gary Gray also knew Glenn Johnston. And I'd go over to Glenn's house and he was like an old curmudgeon and he'd work on mouthpieces. And, you know, I'd go over with my friend and we'd kind of like peer from the other end of the room. And he didn't dare get any closer, you know, um, but he was doing his alchemy anyway he was my first teacher's teacher and after about four years of studying with uh gordon harrett he said you have progressed a lot and i think we should get you another teacher um i've taught you basically all i all i can and i think you're good enough to go to a a, a better teacher and I said, well, you know, you, 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 were, you were how old about this time? About 10? I was I was 10. Okay. So from from the age of six to 10, I studied with Gordon Harrett and he showed me the ropes. And now, now you know, John, let me just interrupt for a second. Six years old is quite young to start on a clarinet. Now, were you playing a full size clarinet at that time? I was. And, and it was like. Uh, like this, you know, it was like really no big. Strap. No strap. No strap. Oh, actually, there was a time when I did have a strap. I do remember that, but it wasn't something that that I used on a regular basis. It was here, here, try this. Eh, it doesn't really help one way or another. So okay, lose the strap and just let's let's just. And I think when you start that early, there's a lot of time that just getting used to. This is a clarinet. This is a reed. This is a mouthpiece. And, you know, it's just like getting the idea. And then my dad, of course, would feed me recordings. And, and he'd go and he'd find these great recordings. I mean, I don't know how he knew they were great, but he came back with uh, a recording of the Brahms Sonatas with Harold Wright. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I listened to them. I said, Daddy, you know, this is a clarinet. This is what yeah. I want to sound like. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, you know, I, I heard this is good. And then he came back with uh, the Shepherd on the Rock, which was also another Harold Wright. I, 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 you know, I couldn't figure out how my... Is that the one with, with Benita Valente? Benita Valente, yeah. Rudolf Serkin, and, and my... One, and the other one was Harris Goldsmith, right? With the Brahms? That's right, with Harris Goldsmith, yeah. the Brahms Sonatas. Classic recording. Wow. I, I had the best sound in my ear from an early age wow. and i have to thank my dad for that because he knows these recordings out i have no idea 
maybe maybe he had conversations with Gordon Herrett and um and Gordon said, you know, I, I've heard these recordings, but I never knew about it. I just suddenly got them and I put them on in my little Philco um, record player in my room. And, you know, I started hearing this amazing sound and beautiful music that spoke to me immediately. And it was like, wow, that's what I want to sound like. And, and, and then as we'll talk about later, you got a chance to meet one of your heroes and record with him. And, you know. That's right. And, and he became my mentor. Harold, you know, I sought him out. Uh, even before I went to Juilliard, I, I sought him out. And he was... Um, he eventually became my mentor, which is which is amazing um, experience for me, and and something that is become part of me. And but in between, of course, there was Gary Gray, well, yeah. and Gar Gary Gray was uh, the the teacher that I eventually went to after Gordon Harrett said you should move on. And my dad said, "Well, you know, you've been so good for Johnny, and you know, we we would like you to continue." He says. Then I'm going to double my rate. <laughs> and, and my dad said, well, okay, maybe we can look around. And then so uh, we called, or he called uh, Mitchell Lurie, who, who happened to be, um, you know, like the big clarinet teacher in town at the time. Sure, he was the big recording guy in L.A. Big recording guy, and unbeknownst to me, had been principal clarinet of the Chicago Symphony before then. And he... Um, talked to my dad and he said, well, you know, uh, your son is very young and, and I'm very busy and, um, but there's this new guy in town and his name is uh, Gary Gray and he's teaching at UCLA now and he might be uh, very interested in teaching your son. And so my dad said, thank you very much. And he calls up Gary Gray and Gary Gray says, I, I I think we ha I have time to um to teach your son, and it turns out that Gary Gray lived half a block from us on our street. <laughs> it couldn't have been more of a I mean that should have been a huge and it was a huge you know like uh, serendipity at the moment, yeah. and and you know it was like um oh okay you know I I, I just. It took me 30 seconds to get to this house, pick up my clarinet and go there. And, and we'd have lessons. And of course, after about a year and a half, he moved further away. So we had to drive to his house. But by then I was, I was hooked, you know, yeah. this guy really was not only a beautiful player and he'd, he'd play things for me and he'd show things to me. This is how it's done. And, you know, he'd, he'd explain everything. And he was very, he was just as gentle as uh as gordon Herrett, but at the same time he was also challenging me to do um things that i i would never have thought i could do at that point so he was he was an amazing psychologist as well as being a great performer and um and technician on the instrument so and of course incredibly versatile as you know you know saxophone flute all the clarinets and and he said you know you should you should be open-minded and and um and try the bass clarinet and try the e-flat clarinet and so i took those opportunities when they came up and he was the one that said uh youth orchestras you know so and my dad uh, bless his heart you know would make all these calls to he'd call um I was in the Mount St. Mary's uh, 
youth symphony for like when I was 10. And we'd rehearse during the summers at, uh, at Lionel Newman's garage. And Lionel Newman was a big, you know, uh, Hollywood composer at that yeah. time. And his two, his two sons, who are now big Hollywood composers, David and Tommy Newman, you know, played violin in, in this little orchestra. And, yeah. and we would rehearse with, um, with um, uh, Dr. Duran, who was a, a flute teacher in town, who eventually became my sister's flute teacher. And Dr. Duran would go through, you know, like Russian Sailors Dance and Dvorak's, you know, New World Symphony and all those, you know, um, uh, standards. And, and we'd just kind of like get these pieces in our ear. And then uh, they, my dad said, you know, I've heard that there's the American Youth Symphony and they just rehearse up the hill here at UCLA. We live, you know, a mile from UCLA. And he said, um, the American Youth Symphony is conducted by Meli Mehta and that's Zubin Mehta's father. And I said, Zubin Mehta, that sounds familiar. Yeah, Zubin Mehta is the conductor and the music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Oh yeah, you took me to see a concert of them when we when I was six. I remember them taking me to the opening of the Dorothy Chandler Music Center when they when they moved in there, and the LA Philharmonic played um, a series of concerts, including uh, I re remember this, the uh, Don Quixote by Strauss, and I still have the programs of that. And I said, so Zubin made a that conductor his father is a conductor too <laughs> yeah so he came you know and he was the most energetic musician and conductor and and you know taskmaster old style but still he he had such music and you know um nurturing in his heart so he taught this generations of 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 musicians and i when i was when i joined the orchestra i was 13 and I was the youngest by far in that orchestra. And, and I just kind of sat at the end of the clarinet section and soaked it all up. So my, and, and, and he was, Gary Gray was uh, colleagues with Maley Mehta because they both taught at UCLA. And so it, it was, this was my original musical training uh, upbringing. Yeah, and you, I mean, what you've laid out, John, is almost a uh, textbook for what you would hope uh, a talented person would have available to them. Uh, the, the support of your parents who were uh, not only smart about things, but uh, brought you to concerts, got you and had music at home and found the right type of teachers for you. And of course, uh, finding someone like Gary Gray, who is I mean, not only one of the loveliest people one could have imagined. We, we lost Gary last year. Yes. I hope I hope anyone watching this video might also go back to uh, the video I, interview I did with Gary uh, roughly about Indeed. a year before he passed away and uh, mm -hmm. uh, just a one of the great people and certainly the most giving person. Uh, so you, generous. Uh, in every way and it, not only in music, in every way and supportive, uh, yes. supportive colleague as uh, the best way. but. So, you, I mean, and then having all these opportunities uh, that your dad found out about and brought to you. So I think it it's, uh, speaks to the fact that, you know, uh, in getting young people hooked on music, you need the support at home. You need the support in the schools. The schools have Absolutely. to offer that, uh, the opportunities. And then 
and and just allowing young people to be at concerts to experience it without any uh, preconceived prejudices mm -hmm. uh, children of any type will love almost any music if it's presented in a positive way and that's certainly the problem i think we've had over the last uh, two or three generations uh, with classical music uh, not being made as available in the schools as it had been in mid-20th century America. Uh, mm -hmm. And certainly when generations of people who became parents not having uh, had the exposure to it, and certainly mass media doesn't give us that exposure. But I think any child having that type of an exposure with, with parental support and and or uh, support at the uh, school, um, you know, good things are going to happen. And we are. We are coming back to that. Today, I am participating in the Chicago Youth Music Festival, and our music director, uh, Ricardo Muti, is going to conduct an orchestra of 150 musicians from all over the country interspersed with members of the Chicago Symphony and the Chicago Civic Orchestra and alumni. And so we are tonight going to have an open rehearsal with Maestro Muti, and we're going to do the um, piece that this youth orchestra has been working on all weekend. And so this is a uh, an initiative that musicians and musical organizations like the Chicago Symphony um, and music schools and and community music schools are stepping up and taking the the model for example that the el sistema which is so uh so uh successful in venezuela uh and has produced the current music director of the la philharmonic uh, gustavo duramel and it it's just one of those things that sparks the interest and the imagination of the young person and then once they get that spark they go they take it and they run and they find their own resources and they gather with their own peers and that was another major part of my education was i had peers colleagues in the american youth symphony at school in in uh, university high school in la who loved music uh as much and maybe even more than I did at the time. Because my parents always thought, you know, you're gonna always have music, but you're gonna have to study uh, the sciences to be able to make a career and a, and a, and a success. That, that was sort of their mindset, that I would have music as an enjoyment and an enrichment and I would have a career in the sciences. So that was my mindset all the way through high school and, into college. Right, and you enrolled at UCLA as a sort of a pre-med. Uh... Pre-med. I was a pre-med major at UCLA. You know, I studied biology, physics, chemistry, uh, calculus, all, all of those things that you do when you prepare to go to medical school. And, and I... Um, at the same time, participated in all the musical organizations, the symphony orchestra, the chamber orchestra, the uh, chamber music ensembles, because my teacher taught there and, and I was taking private lessons with him. And my youth orchestra director taught there, Maile Mehta, he also, so it was like synergy. It was like I had all this wonderful uh, exposure 
to the high level of of music performance and music uh, education, and and I just I have to say it washed over me in such a way that it was occupying all my attention. You know, every spare moment. I said, oh, you want to do a Beethoven quintet? Okay, let's let's get together. Uh, let's see. Okay, after school, we're going to do this. And and we rehearsed it, and I would just love that. And I would sort of dutifully do my um, calculus homework at night and, you know, turn in and get pretty good grades, I actually. But then I came to the point in my education where I actually thought to myself, gosh, you know, Every spare moment, I'm think I'm listening to recordings of the Juilliard Quartet playing the the um, the WC Quartet and the and Beethoven Opus 131, and I'm listening to Harold Wright and watching the Boston Symphony every moment there on TV, and it's like, I think this is really what I want to do. So after two years at UCLA, I went to the counselor there and and I said, you know, I've been thinking of transferring and possibly applying to music schools because you know there are a few music schools that have really good reputations like there's curtis and there's juilliard and there's boston university where my idol teaches where harold wright and so they said well you know music is very competitive and you know only <laughs> one maybe one tenth of one percent really makes it to the level that you are aspiring to I said, I think I'm aware of that, but you know what? I think this is really what I love to do. And they said, well, you know, it sounds like it's your passion. So, and I, I've done my homework too. In those days, there was no internet, obviously. Right. So I rode away to these places and I got catalogs and I opened them right. and there were pictures of, you know, Harold Wright teaching and, and the, the Juilliard Orchestra rehearsing. And it was like, and the building of the, of Lincoln Center where the Juilliard school was. And it was like, wow, this is exciting. I could, I could go for this and I really want to give it a try. So one day at dinner, I went to my parents and I'd done up my homework. I had this stack of, of catalogs and I said, you know what? I talked to the, um, to the counselor at UCLA and, and uh, I'm thinking of um, applying to music school. And this was already after I'd been to two summer festivals at, uh, at, Idlewild, which was which was when I was in high school, and at uh, Aspen, which is where Gary Gray taught during the summers, right. and people were telling me, "You, you know, you're so talented, and where where are you going to go to college?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to UCLA, and I'm going to go to medical school." And they said, "What?" They said, "How can you uh, let your talent fall by the wayside?" They said you should go and really, really concentrate on a musical education. And they said, you can always go to medical school later. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. And I thought about and the more and more I'd, I'd have experiences, it would just fill me with joy to play, you know, a, a Brahms quintet with a string quartet. And I did that when I was in high school. And I was like, gosh, you know, I, I can't, I can't understand not doing this for my for my life. So that's when I said after these experiences and after going to doing my homework on that, I went to my parents and I said, you know, I'm thinking of applying to music schools. And they kind of looked at each other and they said, well, we want you to be happy. 
And if you do your best, we will support you. And that was the best gift my parents ever could have given me. And it was, you know, it was ultimate um, support. And, and they said, you know, follow your heart's desire, you know. Um, you don't, we don't want you to follow our plan for you just because it happens to be what we think is right for you. I think we want you to, um, to do what you want to do and do your best at it. And so that for me was the turning point. And I was like, I have my parents, um, blessing. And on top of that, their financial support, they were going to, they were going to pay for me to go to music school. And I said, this is, this is so amazing. And that fired me up even more. And Gary Gray, you know, uh, already had, had <laughs> when I was two years before that, he was saying, you know, um, when you're ready to go to college, I'll support you wherever you want to go, whether you want to go to university or to a, to a conservatory or what. And I had to tell him, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go study uh, pre-med. And he said, okay, you know, that's fine too. You know, it's like, he was, he was like, uh, but you know, um, I, I'm going to do everything that you want me to do for you. And I'm going to show you the path on, on how to do it best. So he, I, I just, well, you, I had so you, much great support. You, you really had a very strong support system. Uh, yeah. As good as one can imagine, as good as I've ever heard anyone having. So, yeah. So I'm so had, fortunate. Now you're Julia. And I do remember because they were uh, you and Tom Aber. Well, oh, yeah. Bass clarinetist at the time there. And Dennis Smiley had just, I think, graduated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly for me, uh, hearing these wonderful bass clarinetists. But I do remember in one particular year, there were several auditions, one of which was Chicago. I think maybe L.A. was in it. Yeah. Well, time. L.A. was had an audition for bass clarinet during my first year at the Juilliard School, which was uh, in, in 1975. And... And I said, oh, great, you know, I'm going to go. And so I went and I applied. And in those days, they didn't have a screen, so they knew exactly who you were. And they said, <laughs> we know him. And, and, you know, so I got there and, you know, I, I played all my excerpts and, and I saw their expressions and they, hmm, you know, okay, we, we used to know him, but gosh, you know, he sounds pretty good. And they, they come up to me afterwards and they said, you know, you're really on the right track. You should keep uh, you should keep doing this and keep taking auditions and and uh, and um, it was like they gave me a boost but they told me you know maybe it's not quite time but you're on the right track so that that was that was a very good piece of information and then the following year there was the Vancouver Symphony the Cincinnati Symphony and the Chicago Symphony three big bass clarinet auditions and then. In between there, there was an audition for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, the principal clarinet position in the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And I'd known the, uh, the music director, who was Dennis Russell Davies. And Dennis, I had had a chance to work with him at, at Aspen in 1974, before I went to Juilliard. So he remembered me, and I, of course, remembered him. And I was, I was pumped. I said, this is, this is great, because I love chamber music. I want to be principal. You know, bass clarinet can wait for the moment. And so I went and auditioned at St. Paul, and it was, um, I felt so good. You know, I got to play with the wind quintet. I played all the big, you know, chamber, you know, Beethoven symphonies, you know, Gina Stera variations, all, all this stuff that, that was for 
chamber orchestra and they said okay we'll call you and it's like okay and I, I waited and waited and waited and then next morning dennis called me and he says you know we were really impressed by your audition and, and of course you know played the mozart concerto he said you're so virtuosic and and musical and and but we decided to give the job to somebody that had some experience and and i said oh you know uh, this is really what he said you know i know you're going to be he said first of all don't you want to play symphonic music don't you want to be in a big orchestra i said yeah but you know chamber music i just i just love it and he said you mark my words you're going to be in a big symphonic orchestra very soon he says we would be holding you back if we gave you this job i said oh dennis you know i i don't i don't think so and he said you mark my words and the next month i was in the chicago symphony orchestra because i had an opportunity you know i'd been preparing my bass clarinet auditions well now, now but this brings up a point that uh i wanted to ask you you were auditioning on bass clarinet. He auditioned on principal for St. Paul. You're keeping, I mean, these audition lists are uh, different and the demands yeah. are different. And so yeah. keeping both of these instruments up and, uh, you know, uh, A and B flat clarinets, bass clarinet yeah. up and, and working this. I mean, you really must have been uh, practicing night and day. I mean, because I, no matter how gifted one is, these are very different instruments and the repertoire yep. is different, different demands. Uh, how did you go about maintaining your levels on both of these different uh, instruments? Well, in those days, uh, living in New York City and going to Juilliard, I had lots of energy. It was I was energized by everything that I saw. Nowadays, I'm a little bit lazy. John, you know? John, let me correct you. Here. I heard a recital about a month ago. Oh, uh, you have plenty of energy. Ah, uh, well, you know, it, it's also a matter of time management because now, you know, that recital, by the way, has resulted in uh, it was a, like a warm up for my next recording project, which is now all. Are recorded and in the can waiting to be edited and, and released in um, in the spring of 2023 and it's called Chicago clarinet classics and that was a pandemic project so we um, had a complete lockdown the whole world locked down in you know the spring of 2020 and I suddenly found myself with all this time and stacks of music that I'd never played before but always hoped to and so I started chipping away at music and then one thing led to another and I formulated this project with my recording company here in Chicago, CD Records. And that became the, uh, that was the impetus to use my time very well. And, and you know, when I was in elementary school, my, uh, my teachers would always say, you know, he doesn't really make the best use of time. He, f he fools around a lot. And um, it was like, now, you know, I, 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 I have learned a lot and I've learned a lot from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting old now. And uh, through, through my years, I've learned so much. And now my motto is balance is the key to life. And so I balance, you know, my, my physical health with my mental health, with my musical 
developed with, with my family, with everything. It's like everything has to be in perfect balance to be uh, um, optimum. So uh, I've learned a lot from you know my wife uh, Teresa, who's a, who's a fine musician and educator and a clarinetist in her own right, and. By the time you hear this, she will be on the um, faculty with me at Roosevelt University. We're just about to announce that. And so that's a very, very exciting new project for me to be team teaching at a university with my wife. We've team taught before, but it's always been sort of like uh, on a private basis with high school students. And so that's very exciting. And so I've learned a lot by, um, by living with and making music with Teresa to how to balance my life. And I've learned a lot from my kids. My, my uh, two older daughters are both uh, pro professionals in, uh, in culinary. And um, my middle daughter is a Juilliard graduate, uh, Molly. Uh, and she, you know, is a percussionist. And I learned from an, a very early age when Molly started taking percussion in fourth grade and then going through high school that percussionists have to be very organized because they deal with hundreds of instruments and we deal with, you know, four or five instruments and I think that's a lot. But, you know, oh, that's nothing for the percussionist and how to get things from one and how to get from one end of, of, of an instrument to another, playing a marimba and stuff. They have to be so ultimately organized so now molly is a as a food network tv personality and she is uh, still a, a very high quality um musician that that uh, is qualified to play play percussion you know in any great ensemble but she is so organized that she's able to write books write a, a blog do a tv show take care of two young kids it's like i i sit back and marvel at that and then I think to myself, you know, it was all I could do to just learn a, um, uh, uh, an audition list. But I was so driven that that was kind of the singular um, pr process, project for me. Yeah. And, I, and I also had the, uh, I lived on 74th Street, uh, 51 West 74th Street, right off between uh, Columbus and Central Park West in this brownstone. And my landlady was very strict she anytime i'd make a peep I, i'd start to practice in my room she'd call and she said what is that noise i'm hearing <sighs> oh please you know i i gotta practice she says you know what let me do something for you we have a basement here and the guy the super lives in the basement let me ask him if he would mind if you practice down in the sub basement and and she's the guy said, you know, he was very hard of hearing anyway. So she said, yeah, you know, that guy, that guy doesn't mind if you practice. So I said, thank you. Thank you. And so I would be there all night, every night. I'd go down there and I there were like water bugs and dust and boxes of stuff. Water bugs are huge roaches. Right. Well, we're just know. talking about a basic New York apartment now. <laughs> ah, yeah. But, but I had the fortune that, um, I could have my bass clarinet and my clarinets down here and practice at all, all hours of the night. And so I would, and I'd, I'd have my scores to, you know, 
Ein Heldenleben and Don Quixote and, you know, the Miraculous Mandarin, all the things were, that were on the list. And I'd study my scores and I'd, I'd practice the parts and, and, and I'd actually be drawn in by this process. And it, before I knew it, it was like three o'clock in the morning. I said, gosh, you know, I got an eight o'clock class. I better get to some, some sleep. So that was my um, energetic output during that time, I, I was singularly focused on getting ahead. And then at night, before I practiced, I'd go to Carnegie Hall and catch the Boston Symphony on tour and listen to my idol. Then I'd come home and I was so pumped up that I would go down and try to try to play, you know, Beethoven six, just the way Harold did, you know, and it wouldn't quite come out right. So I'd have to, you know, it, it was just a singular focus. Right. And, you know, it reminds me a great deal of what many of the jazz players in the um, uh, certainly the 70s were doing. Uh, many of them would go down and would get lofts and they would, be, you know, several of them would join in and rent a space in a loft and play yep. all day and night in order to just be able to do that. And so you had that. Uh, not yeah. in the loft, but in the sub -basement. No. <laughs> sub basement. I was so I was lucky in that um, for for that. I'm not sure I know of anybody in a major five. Let's say our one of our major orchestras, go from mm -hmm. the bass clarinet position in that same orchestra to a an associate principal principal position. I mean, that's a, quite an unusual scenario. How did that evolve for you? It is very unusual, and it just happened to uh, work out for me that. At, when I joined the uh, Chicago Symphony in 1977, it was uh, it was the available position because you sometimes have to wait uh, a lifetime for a position to become available in a major orchestra. And I just happened to be there at the right time and be honing my skills with one of the great, you know, bass clarinets of all time, Joe Allard, and knowing the uh, material. And I applied and I went and I just happened to be, you know, um, have worked it up and, and get fit my my style of playing with the Chicago Symphony at the time. And Sir George Schulte, who was music director, you know, hired me. And, you know, in those days... I have to say, it was it was easier to get into a great orchestra like that because there weren't as many qualified applicants, there weren't as many applicants to begin with, and even though you sometimes had to wait an entire lifetime for somebody to um, retire, or in this case, die, my my predecessor died suddenly. You know, George Weber was the bass clarinetist of the of the Chicago Symphony. And you just have to be ready for a situation like that. So I was honing my skills and I had my, um, so I went, tried out, got in. And then that my first, the end of my first year, the uh, principal clarinetist at the time, uh, Clark Brody, announced his resignation. And he was retiring from the orchestra and the very young, and he was my mentor at the time when I joined the orchestra, Larry Combs, was uh, the E-flat clarinet player and uh, assistant principal, and he playing a lot of principal clarinet. I heard him several times at, uh, at Carnegie Hall with the Chicago Symphony uh, when they'd come on tour, and he was, became, a, he had worked with Harold Wright, so they were sort of cut, cut from the same cloth, you know, at, at uh, Marlboro. So Larry and I became very close, and he mentored me, and he says, you know, um, 
after I moved to uh, principal, and, and he did, he just moved up to principal because he had auditioned very recently for the Chicago Symphony. He'd been in the Chicago Symphony for three or four years by the time I got there. And Schulte knew him and, and you know, wanted him to be principal. So then there was the opening for assistant principal. And I said, gosh, you know, I'd really love to play principal um, on some of the parts here. And so they gave me a possibility to do that. And, they, and Larry assigned me some principal parts and like some concertos and things like that. And um, I got used to it and I thought, gosh, this is this is great, but I love playing the bass clarinet. You know, those days we were making a lot of recordings. So I got to record big parts on the bass clarinet, you know, Mahler 5, Mahler 6, Mahler 7, pictures at an exhibition, you know, a new piece by uh, Michael Tippett. I played all these bass clarinet, um, you know, parts on recordings and and I and I really got into it and, and videos with all the Strauss tone poems with Schulte and stuff like that. And suddenly there's an opening for E flat. So I was in a quandary. I, I thought, gosh, you know, I love the bass clarinet. I really want to play principal. Maybe there's a way I can do both. So I said, would you guys allow me to play bass clarinet and assistant principal in the orchestra? And they, 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 they said, well, we're going to have to ask the, um, the members committee about that. So they went to the members committee and they said, you know, we don't think that would be really good because, first of all, you'd be setting a strange precedent for this orchestra. We have a complement that was formed in 1962 in the contract and the complement lists every position in the orchestra. And there's uh, principal clarinet, there's second clarinet, there's assistant principal, which includes E flat, and there's bass clarinet. And we cannot change that complement because it's, um, it's memorialized in the contract. Right. So your choices are this, stay on bass clarinet or audition for assistant principal and learn the E flat. So I said, I, I, I thought about it long and hard and I had chats with with uh, Larry and Larry said, look, you know, I think you should um, try the E flat. And he gave me his E flat clarinet, his mouthpiece, his reeds and everything. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to let you, you know, come and play for me and learn all the excerpts and bless his heart. He prepared me for the audition and I had an internal audition and I went and played all the big E flat excerpts and they saying, wow, you know, this guy's a great bass clarinet player, but he knows the E flat stuff too. And and then I played, you know, a couple of Beethoven symphonies and the miraculous Mandarin on first clarinet, the Mozart concerto. And they said, they went away for a few minutes and they came back and they said, sure, if you want to move up, you can. And that that's that sort of thing is so could probably not happen these it's days. Unheard of. Unheard of. It was so. It was so. It was in the right place at the right time that yeah, I yeah, but that you, I did that. You know, you also something came up here that I wasn't aware of. Larry Combs sounds like one of the great colleagues that one could have, and how fortunate that you were there with someone like that. Yes. Because we've heard of other types of colleagues who right. would be anything but supportive, right? Uh, and would actually be negative. I mean, so um, I think mm -hmm. we've talked about so many of your uh, positive influences growing up with your parents, your teachers, your, your educational situation, and how much that encouraged you. But here, entering an orchestra, yeah. major orchestra at 19, and having 
uh, a colleague like Larry Combs extend yes. himself to you like that. Oh, John, I think if you go, if you play the lottery, I'd want to go in with you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been many times blessed in my professional and my personal life, and and I'm I'm thankful every moment of every day for for the you know uh, the life I've had, and so I've had and I've had the good fortune to work with three different principal clarinetists in the Chicago Symphony that have all been absolute. Um, Beautiful colleagues, Clark Brody, Larry Combs for the longest time, Steve Williamson, my current principal in the Chicago, all, all wonderful um, musicians, wonderful colleagues. And so, so I've been very, very lucky from that point of view. And uh, they've all given me opportunities to do what I'd like to do in, in the best way possible. So I, I'm, I'm, th I'm thanking, I'm so thankful. And, and Larry, you know, let, ushered me into into the job that he was leaving to do to do a e flat and assistant principal and so i um i moved up several octaves and at the same time you know we we had a bass clarinet vacancy for about three years and so anytime something would come up that had both e flat and bass Larry would say to me, you know, you can just choose whichever part you wanted to play. So, you know, there was one time when we did uh, 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 Till Unspiegel, and I said, well, you know, I've already recorded that with Schulte, so I'd like to play, you know, the piccolo clarinet part on Till Unspiegel. Fine, you know, that's great. So we'd hire uh, an extra to play bass clarinet. And then there was, um, uh, I guess, you know, a couple of other pieces like um, Daphnis and Chloe, and I, I'd, I'd like to play bass clarinet in this. So we hired somebody to play E flat, and then you know other other parts. I had I had my pick of whether to play E flat or bass for several years because we had several auditions to fill the position that the bass clarinet position. So finally, we got Laurie Bloom, and and then we were a complete section for twenty six years. I mean, uh, it was a it was a it was a long time when we had. Uh, we had four clarinets, all hired by Schulte. Yeah. We were the longest. Uh, Again, that's an unusual circumstance that you found yourself in, one not likely to occur, certainly not in a major, major symphony orchestra like mm -hmm. Chicago. Um, let me sort of step uh, aside in another way. Uh, in, you've practiced, obviously, for auditions, uh, and you've done that. You've practiced to uh, prepare music for, you know, regular concert series. You've also practiced, uh, you did competitions in the 80s. We were prize sure. winners in both Munich and Naumburg and mm -hmm. practicing for that. How does, does your practice routine uh, change in, in any way radically? Obviously the musical situations, the mm -hmm. specific pieces will dictate some things, but do you make any uh, changes also, I should mention, as a concerto soloist, where you've played Nielsen and uh, Carter concertos with Chicago. I mean, it, does your preparation, does your practice routine change to, uh, in any radical way for these various scenarios you found yourself in over your career? They, it does. It uh, changes radically from project to project, from sometimes from week to week. This week, by the way, we are playing... Um, 
a very interesting program that starts rehearsing tomorrow. We're going to do the uh, the the Firebad, Firebird Ballet, the entire Stravinsky Firebird, which uh, I always play the D clarinet now, which is the um, the piccolo clarinet, and uh, and that's with third clarinet and, and D clarinet. So I've had to brush that up. That's a great. There's a great uh, history with that piece in in our orchestra too, because we've recorded that and done videos with Boulez. You can you can find that on YouTube. That's a that's a really cool one to watch. The uh, the Boulez. Is this the, the original orchestration? Yeah. Yeah, 1910, uh, Firebird. So we're doing that. We're revisiting that piece this week. So I'm brushing that up. Plus, we're doing a brand new piece by. Uh, I think he's a Swedish composer by the name of Anders Hilborg, and I'm playing contrabass clarinet in that. So we just had our big giant paperclip um, renovated by a guy here named Matt Bordoshuk. That he's he's done a great job on on uh, on overhauling this this contrabass that we had. So I'm excited to play that, yeah. and then I'm going to play. Um, principal clarinet in the Prokofiev second violin concerto on the same program. So I have to juggle from different, uh, different registers, you know, starting with the Hilborg on contrabass, moving up to principal on the Prokofiev and then moving way up to um, piccolo clarinet in the Stravinsky. So that, that's the sort of thing that I, I relish. I just, I just love having the opportunity to be versatile, but of course it pushes me because I, I have to, First of all, get you know three different kinds of reeds ready, and just just really um, you know put in the put in the time and the effort and the energy to be able to um, make these make these things happen. And then, as you mentioned, when I have a, a um, concerto or a, or a recital or a competition, then of course it's absolute. Um, and then if I have to do orchestra on top of that. The number one name of the game is efficiency. So it's like there are certain things that I know are going to be are going to go fine. So I don't waste time. I only focus on the things that are really like giving me trouble and kind of like try to work those details out. And then hopefully the whole thing will kind of come together. So I've I've had to and you mentioned the uh, competitions that I've done and that those are some of the hardest work that I've ever had to do because to perform in a competition often means that you have to perform like 11 different. I remember at Munich, I had to prepare 11 different pieces and I had maybe performed a handful of them before, but a lot of them I'd never played before. So I, I had to bring those things up and study them. A lot of the a lot of the preparation is just studying scores. It's just opening the score and seeing how everything lines up and how things um, go with, and uh, you know, and and how to shape phrases and how they sound and and just building a plan for it is so important. And now, I think even more so in my um, current situation in my career, I, I play. A little bit less and I study a little bit more and, and and that I think has become sort of the norm for me because I don't want to wear myself out and you know get fatigued because I, I might get fatigued a little bit sooner now than I did when I was 19 so in, in those days I used to just hit hit the instrument and, and you know continue playing and playing and playing now I've had to learn to be more efficient and just kind of like focus in on certain things 
maybe just an interval and study more about see how pieces line up like you know when i'm learning a, a new piece and i had to learn six new pieces for the album that i just recorded and i i just spent a lot of time and thank goodness this was one of the uh silver linings of the corona cloud that i had the time to do that and and to undertake a project like a recording of of pieces that i had to learn from from the ground up takes time right right i mean it's again it sort of sounds a little bit like um the way great jazz players evolve that uh, especially ones with great a technical facility that over time as they move into their 40s 50s 60s 70s they play mm -hmm. maybe fewer notes leave a little more space in their solos mm. uh, and maybe what they're playing therefore sometimes makes more compositional sense and maybe has more of an emotional yep. uh, strain to it but it's it's very interesting that you you approach uh, your work like that now let me yes you, uh, based on what you you have coming up in this concert series which mm -hmm. do you tend to want to practice the lower instruments before the upper or vice versa? Do you have any feelings in that regard? I do practice the lower instruments first. And um, well, first of all, in this particular case, because the contrabass is less familiar to me than, than the D clarinet, um, they're both less familiar than, than the, the B flat, A and the E flat. But, uh, the contrabass is an instrument that we used to take on tour all the time in the 1990s. I, I, we would, we could never go on tour without taking the contrabass clarinet. When, when uh, uh, Daniel Barenboim was our music director, we used to either play the Corleano Symphony or the Schoenberg Five Pieces for Orchestra or pieces by written for us by Takamitsu, and and we just take these pieces on tour and. The, the stage crew, bless their hearts, would always have to get the big trunk for the contrabass. But uh, it's not used as much so, so much recently, except for this season we have two pieces, the first being this, the, the uh, Philip Glass Symphony Number no. 11, which I had to dust off the contrabass for about a month ago. And then I found out that, whew, this instrument is not in very good shape. So... We have to get it out and get it back in time. Uh, it had been overhauled now, and, and it's much better shape now. So this Hilborg is coming up this this week, and and that that's much more athletic than the uh, than uh, Philip's symphony was. So it'll be interesting. And then to get back into the uh, the D clarinet on the uh, Firebird, you know, I know the way it's supposed to go. I know the 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 problem spots and so i zero in on them right yeah that's it that's interesting it also uh in a way going back to a, a, an interview i did a couple of seasons back with stanley uh, uh, -huh. uh i asked him about that because you know stanley was always throughout his career uh very involved in playing chamber music anywhere I and mean, he he just took every opportunity to do that and i said mm -hmm. well how is it you know of course it, it concerto playing that he would often do you know, how is it that you would go week to week and be able to focus? And he would say, he would say that, you know, he would have his read routine. He'd have mm -hmm. his reads for the next week going the week before. And he would mm -hmm. only practice those things uh, that he felt needed to be addressed. So, right. again, there I think there's someone who clearly made use of efficiency. In his efficiency. It's the you know, name of the game. Absolutely. Game. Let me ask you... Uh, 
regarding all of this, what uh, warm-up routines or what exercises from you know whatever great pedagogical studies do you still find after all these years so valid, so uh, important to your to you to maintain you know keep your levels up? Mm -hmm. Well, very very simple uh, exercises like intervals, difficult intervals to try to connect them. Very simple, like five note scales to, to be able to get evenness. And um, basically at this point, it's getting selection of reads that are gonna be able to do the, the task required. So uh, we live in, um, in an environment where the weather changes a lot from day to day. And so we have to be ready for those changes to affect our reads. And so that's one of the things that um, I spend most of the time in practicing and warming up to get the reeds warmed up uh, for that particular day. And I, and I think there's, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've um, over the years had a couple of uh, books that have been very helpful. And one of them is the, uh, the Yetudes that were created by Jim Stevenson for me. I mean, they—they—they're these, uh, and and the, the picture of this is my daughter Molly's. Uh, is that from her cookbook? Yeah, it's from her. It's from her blog. My name is Yay com, and so he, uh, Jim Stevenson, uh, is a very very um, wonderful composer, but he's also very uh, uh, witty. Um, word craftsman. So he 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 did yetudes to be you know, and then and then he's so clever because each one of the yetudes is based on uh, a, a different recipe. So this one is funfetti pony pinata cake. That's that's the that's the cover. Well, wait, and, a minute, and, wait a minute. Let me see that again. That doesn't look like so much fun with every note being articulated there. <laughs> I know, and and each each one of these each one of these yetudes focuses on a different aspect of clarinet uh, technique and clarinet challenges. So this this is the funny funfetti honey pinata cake, and then the first one is a cat cake, and then there's the molten halva lava cake that is slowly flowing molten legato you know like that and then there's there's high high uh oh there's frosted red velvet cakes you know and, and it's just like very very smooth legato going I, I, through I don't, I don't gather there's a halva cake <laughs> there is there there's halva there's there's molten halva lava cake yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah halva lava cake and then of course there's there's the um okay this is cool this is strawberry hi-hat cupcakes so this has an optional um hi-hat symbol oh, part <laughs> You're supposed to play that with your left leg, I assume. Right? Yeah, play it with my daughter. That's the idea. And and then there's very high staccato, the marzipan marzipan blueberry cake. Wow. You know, so so I I provided Jim with the suggestions for the different challenges, and he created the music based on the titles from Molly's um, recipes. Right. And so that became one of the things that I was able to keep. Uh, during the 
during the pandemic, I mean, these are difficult. So during the pandemic, I had a chance to really delve into these and, and get to know them. And then there's the... Is this book available online? Yes. Or? Oh, absolutely. It is available at www.composerjim.com, which okay. is Jim Stevenson's, uh, which okay. Jim Stevenson's um, website. Okay. Excellent. That's Jim. Right. Me and Jim. And, and yeah, and so he, he's been a, a great friend and colleague and resource over the years. And of course, my... Um, project that was released most recently by CD Records is is 74 minutes of clarinet music by Jim Stevenson including his clarinet concerto called Liquid Melancholy. So this this is one thing of my my previous um, recording project and then the upcoming recording release is going to be Chicago Clarinet Classics. So I, I've been able to use the time that I've been away from orchestra we were on lockdown for you know better part of a year and so i was able to take the time it's found time and so was able to to get to know jim's eight yetudes and to get to um know six new pieces for clarinet classics well that well that speaks also to your uh, involvement over the years in new music and and certainly in chamber music as as you were the founder of chicago pro musica uh, which has been a hugely successful chamber group, Grammy, multiple Grammy winner. You know, again, yeah. uh, this speaks to the fact uh, of something you alluded to earlier, that one, in order to function on a high level and as a professional, uh, and especially in today's world, uh, and if you have a great deal of passion for making music of a lot of styles, you have to be incredibly organized and focused. And, uh, yeah, and there are so many more distractions today than perhaps when we met at school. I mean, yeah. certainly the internet and social media and the responsibilities one has now with the orchestras and trying to promote the orchestras within a community, the mm. amount of focus and uh, organizational skills one has to have is as important, it seems almost, as one's musical skills. It is true. And, uh, and like I say, you know, uh, my biggest challenge is scheduling, but at the same time, 
the efficiency with which one parses their time and also the support system that one must have and the colleagues all work together to to create a constellation for for one's success i think i think it it um cannot happen in in a vacuum you have to have you know inspiration from colleagues which i get every day from my from my colleagues in the chicago symphony you know um wisdom and inspiration from family which i get every day from my from my um spouse from my beautiful and talented wife teresa and from my kids you know it's just like from my students you know i currently have six students that i teach at, at the roosevelt uh, university and i learn from them every day and so it's it's a matter of being open-minded and um efficient and just seeing how um how the different parts can work together in harmony and i think it's really a good uh, it's a good uh, thing to have to be able to have all that happen in harmony right now obviously a, a committed music educator at carrying forward the uh, examples that someone like gary gray your mentors yeah. said to you what are the materials that you sort of want all of your students to cover uh you know, in, in their colleges? I mean, what are the essential uh, pedagogical materials and repertoire that you sort of insist that your students be exposed to? Right. Well, I believe in a balanced diet. And this is what uh, Gary always espoused also. You want to have a very strong grounding in, in orchestra music, because that's where the majority of our repertoire uh, comes in. So, so everybody has to be, um, on the track to study all the important orchestra parts and you want to be able to know all the important chamber music pieces which are some of the greatest achievements in art for and they happen to be written for our clarin for our clarinet for our instrument and then there's the solo repertoire and then in order to have the tools to be able to create success on those things you need to target the individual challenges that individual students uh, are up against. So some of my students have absolutely natural sound qualities and you don't want them to change a thing with their tone. It's like play that way and beautiful. Others have real challenges with creating a, a sound and, and um, keeping the pitch on and things like that. So you have to target the individual needs of the individual student. And I think that is important to have um, the recognition of what the needs of a particular student are. So that's, that's why I'm so excited with our program at, uh, at Roosevelt, at the Chicago College of Performing Arts, that we have that ability now to, to have a team teaching um, approach where Teresa and I will be able to evaluate and teach to each individual student's needs and desires. And I think um, it, it's, it's much better that way than to have a template that every student must follow. So I take into account what the student um, imparts to me. It's like, oh, oh you wanna play the Brahms Quintet? Oh, okay, we'll work on that. Oh, you wanna play the, um, 
you know, uh, uh, the Bernstein Sonata. Okay, we'll work on that. But in order to do that, you have to work on this particular aspect of your articulation. So we're going to go to this particular yetude, and we're going to check that articulation out. So you get a toolbox that creates um, an environment for success. And then we need to have build a plan how to make the music uh, uh, effectively speak to the listener. So, so it is a multifaceted approach and a balanced diet. And, and I think the more we can be flexible and the more we can be open and each student has something individual to say. Each musician has something individual to say. And so it is our job as educators to be able to bring the best so that that uh, student has the, the success that she or she, he or she needs to be able to be their best communicator and their best musical uh, spokesperson through their instrument. And, and I, I believe strongly in that, that ex experimentation and, and um, feedback is very, very important for each. And, and I sort of like, I, um, I reject any rigid approach. You know, it has to be fluid, it has to be sensible, and most of all, it has to be communicative. You have to communicate the story. And then you put, you put the pieces in place and, and gain the tools to be able to do all that most effectively. And, uh, and I think the talent that we have coming up these days is tremendous. It's, it's like there, there's no shortage of, of talent in young musicians. It's to be able to channel the talent and to nurture the talent and to bring the best out in that individual that's going to be able to give them success and hopefully um, give them a lot of satisfaction along the way. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it, 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 in much of what you've just said reminds me a little bit of Joe Allen's approach to each Absolutely. There was no... I mean, sometimes to the extent where I would just say, please tell me what to do. <laughs> tell me what yeah. is the because, you know, what do you want? You bring it in. And then from there he would go. And the lesson would build off of that. Exactly. And that's that's the approach that I have. Um, I have adopted also because I find it's very successful. And a, a student may require uh, more guidance than another student and some some students are much much more self motivated as well as self uh diagnostic you know and that that is for me that's the ultimate in success is when a teacher can help a student be his or her own teacher and that that's where i i, I find um really, really satisfaction in when I see my students go on and become their own teachers. Exactly. Um, and I, I would imagine there are times when you might use some rose etudes or Bamman studies or class Absolutely. To, to bring some uh, uh, difficulties into uh, focus and to concentrate. The basics. The basics are the Rose uh, studies, the 40 studies, the Rose 32 etudes, and the uh, I like the Cavallini yes. uh, caprices. They're, they're just something that uh, Gary Gray yeah, got me started on. You mentioned if you're going to deal with Cavallini caprices, like Bob Marsala said, the Riccardi edition. 
R-I-C-O-R-D-I. Yes, Ricordia Audition. Yes. But you know what? In, in my um, experience, you can, you can take music like that, like operatic music, and make it your own no matter what articulations you use. But you want to be able to do it effectively, to be able to communicate the story and to tell the story and the story doesn't have to be the same from one day to another or from one player to another it can be a completely different story but it has to be a story exactly uh, i want to just one or two more questions uh, uh in in this uh interview that i'm curious about um you've talked glowingly obviously about harold wright but were there were there others and had there been other uh steam players who you look to as role models in the way they uh, evolved as musicians and as clarinetists of course well um one of the one of the great teachers that that i um have to mention and and credit is michelle zakowski who was the principal clarinetist of the la philharmonic as i was growing up in in la and i heard her play all the time and i um, when Gary would go to Aspen and I couldn't join him at Aspen, she would be my teacher. Uh, she was actually my uh, last teacher in L.A. before I went to Juilliard. And she got me prepared for orchestral. She had such an insight um, into all the details of playing in an orchestra because at that time she'd already had, you know, 40 years of experience playing the LA Philharmonic. You know, she'd, she'd been in there for 60 years when she retired. And um, so she really showed me the way for orchestral excerpts in a very, very detailed uh, way. And, and, you know, she, she is one of my very best friends and colleagues and, and I'm so indebted with her to her because um one of the most recent projects that i've been working on is extremely exciting that i that i want to share with you and that is the uh, john williams clarinet concerto was written for her and she performed it several times in the 1990s and she um she's entrusted me with the music and i have plans to to perform the john williams concerto with the chicago uh College of Performing Arts Orchestra, and hopefully in other uh, other uh, venues as well in the upcoming seasons. Well, and John Williams certainly knows how to write beautifully for clarinet, and so many uh, successful uh, movie scores involve oh. beautiful clarinet playing. Certainly featured the great Emily Bernstein. Uh, right, Bernstein played uh, terminal. The terminal and that piece has become you know they've they've created a piano reduction score yes very victor's tale yes so i i'm um i that's one of my future projects that i'm uh working on right now that i'm crafting right now and and it's um uh, it's as a as a result of my friendship and um uh, you know being a student of of michelle's also and interestingly enough she was the um her late husband, Peter Zakowski, was also a clarinetist, and his father was a predecessor of mine in the Chicago Symphony, uh, Charles Zakowski. Peter Zakowski um, was Charles's father, and he was the bass clarinetist in the Chicago Symphony in the 1940s. And uh, 
so there is a connection between Michelle and the Chicago Symphony because her husband came from that lineage. And that's why she plays the German system. Because in the 20s and 30s in Chicago, the uh, principal clarinetist was uh, uh, Robert Lindemann. And he came from Germany and he played the German system. So he had some students, some disciples that played German system, one of which was Peter Zukowski and another of which was Dave uh, was George Weber, George Weber, who was my immediate predecessor in the Chicago Symphony. They both played on the German system instruments. And during her tenure in Los Angeles, when um, when Michelle married Charles Zukowski, she got interested in the German system, and that's to this day what she plays on. I see. Okay, well, that's that's some interesting background there. I had no idea about any of that. Yeah, and I play. There was a time when uh, uh, Daniel Berenboim, as music director, wanted all of our clarinet players to play the German system. So we uh, actually got German system clarinets, and I still haven't made. I made several recordings on them. I recorded the Hindemith Sonata, the Rager Sonata on the German system clarinets. And I'm, I'm, of course, a Yamaha artist, and the Yamaha company makes beautiful German system clarinets. Not only do their French system clarinets, you know, uh, for me, uh, achieve the, the best that I've ever experienced, but their German system clarinets also are, are absolutely top-notch. And Michelle, uh, played not only the Vorlitzers, but she had a set of, of Yamahas as well. Yeah, well, I, I think I mentioned to you that only within the last, I guess, month or so, I, I ended up buying uh, the Yamaha CSVR ASP yeah. model, uh, yes. which is basically a, a, a takeoff on the best of the uh, Buffet R13s. And I have been a Buffet player mm-hmm. 90% of my life. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was blown away. I mean, yeah. and no one, if I were playing with anyone, and it would, it would, no one would know it, it wasn't a buffet in, of the best vintage of buffet. It's that good. I, and believe me, I, you know, as a doubler, I have, I had, well, I have four B flat clarinets. I didn't need a fifth as a doubler, mm. uh, but it was, it was too good. And yeah. quite frankly, I'm playing it all the time i i i i don't know if i'm going to be able to go back to my buffet um uh any of them. the csvr yamaha is, is the best clarinet i've ever played and i've been playing them now for about seven years uh since they first came out and i, I just i just love it yeah and, I, and you I, played the I, most I recent model the asp the, yeah the souped up version with uh with the yeah the atelier model <laughs> but the it is very special. But but you know the the bore um, of the of the bass CSVR instrument is identical, and so I've played all of them interchangeably since uh, I guess 2017. Right, and you were one of the. I mean, but you hadn't you played Yamahas prior to that? Uh, since 1990, I've been exclusively a Yamaha artist since and, 1990. And you were the first, actually, of a major U.S. Uh, uh, clarinet chair in one of our major mm-hmm. orchestras really maybe the first to to go full-time for yamaha uh as far as yeah. i recollect um, it is true 
Well, and I've, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it's because they were so attentive. It's the Yamaha, the people that work in the Yamaha design division were so uh, interested in creating an instrument and getting feedback from the players that play them. So they'd come here every year to Chicago and they bring the, uh, new models and would have us uh, evaluate them. And so it would, it would be, since I came to the orchestra, they, they, they started doing that. And then finally by 1990, they made every year incremental changes. So I said, you know, if they're gonna be so attentive and, and react to every comment that I have about their instruments, I think I'm gonna be playing their instruments uh, exclusively. So I have been. Yeah, and uh, they've done the same, by the way, for the saxophones. About three years ago, I purchased, uh, uh, they were an alto saxophone of theirs that I, I just love. I mean, and uh, so I've seen those changes too, and I'm probably not one who changes easily, uh, mm -hmm. especially from bands that I've grown up with playing my whole life, but I've been blown away, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, well, they're doing something right, and it comes from listening to the artists that play their instruments on a very, very high level, and what our uh, what our requirements are, and what what our desires are for what an instrument can do. Yeah, and and you can see that in the way uh, the instruments that at least I purchased and have chosen ergonomically. They're just so friendly to the hands, and especially as you get older, you know, I I, I need that kind of help, and and uh, even to the extent I need all the help I can get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, our, our mutual friend, the great repairman in New York here, Tomoji Hirakata. Oh yes. I, I when I was telling Tomoji recently about the fact that the weight of the instrument seems so much less, yet silver keys, it has all the same amount of keys as my buffet, and he said, well, the thumb rest they use about whole three or four different metals hmm. and they have so many people he said invested in just the thumb rest and figuring out what's the best way to to, to do that for resonance and weight and you know I, I sat there with my mouth open it's like jesus christ wow that's amazing i did not know that wow that is that is really uh yeah they it's, it's very they don't leave any stone unturned at, no, at, no. Yeah. and that's what it should be and, Absolutely. Uh, and it's nice to see that uh, occurring. Uh, and I'm certainly grateful. I wish it had happened 40 years ago. <laughs> when, right. Well, there's <laughs> they've they've had they've had these developments, you know, in those days, I think everybody was just resigned to the fact that you, you play a buffet R13 and that that was it. A couple of guys played Selmers. Right. And um, but now it's like all the instrument manufacturers are are coming up and, and, and paying more attention. And y Yamaha is so skilled at developing instruments that, that they have, they've been so um, successful in, in, in creating something that responds to the, to the uh, individual player yeah, making sort of, comments. Sort of like what happened with the car industry here in America. You know, mm -hmm. suddenly in the 70s, 80s, you know, people were buying Toyotas and Hondas and the American car uh, industry was in the in the tank for a while, but they had to right. up their game, and so now. But now, I mean, you can get wonderful cars from anywhere. Sure. Uh, yeah. It took it took that initial uh, push, especially yeah. the Toyota. Uh, yeah. 
cars really sort of changed oh, yeah. people's yeah. view uh, the making of cars. I'm, I'm, I've, I own, for the first time since two years, an American-made car. I've never owned anything else, uh, but now I own an American-made car. Yeah, and they're wonderful now. I mean, they, they finally, yeah. it's taken a long time, but they are there. There's no question. But uh, it's just yeah. interesting how the parallel uh, in, in approaching things. But True. It, it always takes a uh, one company to, to put that extra energy in, which brings yep. us now to your other equipment, mouthpiece and reeds which, and ligature, which, of course, all the clients right. want to know about. Well, you know, I, I, I've been a, a Van Doren artist for, for many, many years now, too. And in fact, I was going to mention that there is a book, the Van, Van Doren Centennial book, that came out in 2005. Uh, that Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, you probably have it. The Van Doren Centennial Etude and Exercise book that I highly recommend. And th that's one of the things that uh, I, I use... On a regular, there it is. There it is. Yep. I had it out uh, and studying, uh, of course, some of your things here. And you brought yeah. me back to Behrman, the yeah. staccato and trill exercise. And That's it. That's in there. And then, yeah. and my wife Teresa has a has a warm up exercise in there also. I'll just plug the other people here. My my ex teacher Eddie Daniels, Bikini oh, yeah. our ex colleague, student friend Mitch Estrin, Gary. Oh Parker. yeah. Greg All the greats. Uh, yep. The Dallas Symphony, Dave Weber. Dave Weber. You know, these are among the people who have contributed etudes. And I, so it's a great book. And I, I, I had it on the shelf. And in preparing for our interview, I went back and I said, I think I remember John yep. something in this book. And then for the last several weeks, I mean, this has been the major uh, focus on my yep. stand. It's a uh, it's a real it's a real uh, great resource, yes. and um, it was something wonderful that uh, Van Doren did to celebrate their hundredth anniversary, and so and and I have to say their reads are getting better and better all the time. I I, I think their standards, their quality, their uh, uh, the way they package the reads first of all is 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 very is improving all the time, and so I'm happy to to use their use their reads on all the instruments that i play all the way from e flat down to contrabass and then i i use the optimum ligature on all my mouthpieces and uh i think it's a game changer that they came out with the black diamond uh series mouthpieces uh, the ones particularly i like are the bd4 and the bd5 on the b flat clarinet and especially the BD5 on the E-flat clarinet. Best mouthpiece I ever played on the E-flat clarinet. Well, John, it's been you know great catching up with you. And uh, boy, yeah. you, you still have all the energy in the world, it seems to me. And uh, also you, uh, a lot of ability and a desire to share your knowledge. And I'm sure the, uh, the young folks who are studying with you at the college are the beneficiary of this. And, uh, you know, uh, we need more people like you in major positions putting themselves out there, not only in the orchestral world, but in the chamber music world, as you do, playing new music and teaching and sharing your ideas with the youngsters and, uh, you know, just making yourself uh, more and more available. And I think this is, uh, you know, a, a, a trait that I think we 
need to impress upon others uh, for all instruments, but certainly uh, regarding classical music and, and hopefully building back an audience uh, so that the orchestras can sustain themselves and great music can, you know, continue to be written and heard. Indeed. Well, Ed, I, I, I'm so glad that you're providing this service for everybody, for young musicians and um, experienced musicians as well. And it is just, it's delightful to be able to, to uh, hear these interviews with our colleagues and, you know, our, our mentors. And it's, it's so, it's a, a wonderful thing that you're doing for everybody. So I, I thank you for inviting me and uh, it's great to catch up and, and yeah. to go back, uh, live our, you know, relive our um, days ago, yeah. almost 50, almost 50 years ago. Hard to, hard to believe, but. Uh... Yeah, it is. But in, in, in a way, kind of, everything has kind of slipped by in a flash. But then when you think about it, there's been a lot happening. Yeah, so. certainly. And uh, just a little aside that I, you would probably more appreciate. Uh, the re the uh, reason I got my website going, because I'm, I'm not a PR person. I, I, I don't like doing that stuff. I'm not a social media person. I don't do any of that. I, just, I have a Facebook page that's only professional. I, I don't interact on Facebook, Twitter, none of that. I, I'm okay. not a uh, social media <laughs> person. But... <laughs> When our former teacher, Joe Allen, passed, uh, and there was not a mention of him in, our, in the local union paper, Local 802, there was nothing done. And um, I guess I, I forget how old I was, but it was somewhere around, right around 1990, 1991 that Joe passed. Right. Uh, and I saw there was nothing, nothing then. And this is a man who had taught Oh, so much influence. 60 plus years uh, and had taught thousands upon thousands of musicians, clarinet, saxophone, uh, bass clarinet, of course, and in all styles of music, commercial, jazz, classic, I mean, nothing. And it, it bothered me. And it was yeah. at me. And, and finally, a number of years ago, I was doing a show with a colleague who had uh, created a website for brass players. Mm. And uh, where he was interviewing great brass players and, 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 and thereby uh, sort of sustaining that legacy and, and, and uh, letting people, especially younger players, hear about, you know, not only the specific players that he was interviewing, but about a more general framework of the way the music industry was and what others contributed, uh, people right. who might not hear. And so really Joe's passing and the way I felt like it was not honored the way it should be mm. was sort of the impetus. Yeah. And it took me a number of years to try to figure out how I could do something. And um, well, the use of the website and then these type of interviews uh, yeah. really provided that forum. And uh, so... Pays tribute to our, our mentor and, and, and the legacy that they leave. And, you know, we're part of that legacy. So... It is our duty to to pass that on to the uh, the next generations, and I think I appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you so much, and and uh, continued luck and good luck uh, with the contra uh, coming up and and your reads on the Thanks. clarinet. <laughs> thank you very much. I can use all the luck I can get. <laughs> you know that. All right. Well, John, thank you, and take good care. You too, Ed. Thank you so much. Okay.